You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary, where we have a great episode for you today for founders and for investors. We're so thankful today to be here with Dan Schwartz. And Dan has just an incredible background. One of the most interesting people I've had the pleasure to meet. Uh, We connected, man, over a decade ago. And just to see what he's done uh, throughout his career in multiple facets, it's just an absolutely fascinating story. I know you guys will absolutely enjoy it. Dan, so thankful to have you here today. Thank you for having me. You know, Dan, we're, we're going to hear so much from you today. Everything from uh, art collecting to uh, really taking a city and allowing a city to be an innovator. And that's just a fascinating concept for me that, you know, all these things that we talk about with our founders about innovation, everything that investors are wanting to invest in to bring disruption and the future of the world, whether it's medicine or fintech or technology, any of these places. Usually there's an ecosystem within a community and a city that helps be a piece of what's happening there. And Dan is really at the intersection of that in his community, uh, but that's not where he started. So, you know, Dan, let's go all the way back to school. What did you actually go to school for? Because it's got some great tie-ins to what you're doing today. Yeah, so it's I didn't take a traditional route to get where I am. Uh, I went to school for fine art and philosophy. Was that a double major? Yeah. So fine art and philosophy. Were you the first fine art and philosophy <laughs> double major in the history of ever? I'm sure I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever met another fine art and philosophy double major? Let me ask that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, so, but So you've got it. Uh, audience, we are speaking with a unicorn today, an absolute <laughs> unicorn. I told you Dan is one of the most fascinating people uh, I have the pleasure to know. Uh, that's not lip service. He really is. So sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. They go together very, very well. So I'm sure I'm sure someone has done it. Um, I'm not I'm not purporting to be the only one to do it. All right. If you are listening and you were a double major in fine art and philosophy, please reach out to Dan on LinkedIn. He would like to connect with you. I would. I would would love uh, that. And if you're not, please help us blow this up. We're going to find Dan another double major in fine art and philosophy. So, so uh, as one might assume, that doesn't have a traditional path to anywhere. And uh, but I've just always been very curious about systems and how humans think about them, how we think about ourselves, where we find our identity in space. I don't know how to. I don't know how to not be abstract about it. And uh, I just kind of have always taken one step in front of the other and gotten to wherever I'm going. So that led me to New York. And then in New York, I, I think what I, what I would consider an informal post-grad kind of program of just understanding the world in a, in a much different way. And so I was there 2006, seven and eight primarily, and just seeing at the height of a bubble how spaces were changing, how investment was happening, how poorly it was being done, how well it was being done. (laughs) Um, And so that just, it fascinated me. Everything about it fascinated me. 
Uh, also, just I wasn't prepared to sound so weird in this podcast, but prior, um, just sort of a, a, a passion of mine going back into like middle school has <laughs> been dark ages and collapses. And so seeing a recession happen in real time was very uh, important for me and, and allowed me to understand systems that I had been studying or been fascinated by. Um, I never thought I would see history happen. Um, so wow. the Great Recession was a, a really important piece in in my development and the way that I see the world. <laughs> um, and very, I mean, we're we're back, and in my opinion, we're back to a lot of those same issues right now. So Dan, uh, you know, going back to your thought about the Dark Ages, and at first, just to be clear, uh, I, you know, I, everybody we bring on this podcast is absolutely weird, including me. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm. <laughs> Uh, my friends all think I'm just weird, dude. So, uh, we're, we're, if you weren't weird, we wouldn't have you here, <laughs> but you. <laughs> welcome to a great club, uh, of weirdness. But, uh, you know, you were talking about the dark ages, uh, just curious, are you familiar with a book called the fourth turning? I am. Yeah. And I love it. Um, the, I was actually just talking about the concept of the fourth turning, um, like yesterday or a couple days ago. Um, and, and just that that's a, it's an, Many people's opinion, in my opinion, also, it's that's an integrated aspect of our humanity, and you can't escape from all of it. Technology allows us to modify things. Um, good policy sometimes allows us to curb certain aspects of of our nature, um, but we're not going to be able to just say we're done with it because we choose to be done with it, and then go along our merry way. So audience, what, what Dan and I are geeking out about is uh, this book called The Fourth Turning, uh, the concept, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it completely. And maybe we'll see if we can get that author on our show here uh, sometime soon, because I, I think it's a really relevant concept. But the idea is you've got a generation that works really, really, really hard, uh, really coming from difficult times, and they build up society. And they make it better for the next generation. Then the next generation saw how that previous generation was actually working so hard. And so they actually continue to run with it. And the next generation kind of saw them still work hard and they still saw their grandparents' generation. Uh, and things got even better. Well, by the time they got to the fourth generation, they're so far removed from the hard work that happened at the first generation to kind of build all that up that they just end up squandering it. Until things get so bad that then a new generation has to come in and reset all over. And, and you know, kind of the book takes you through the Dark Ages, the fall of Rome, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, uh, and really says, and hey, America, uh, it's a, we're about due. And, you know, uh, in a lot of respects, look what we're doing to ourselves with uh, people that didn't get to see that greatest generation, the Tom Brokaw greatest generation, you know, really build this country up in the back end of the Great Depression. And I was lucky enough to, to really know my great grandma, um, who was born in 1903. And so I think that's kind of part of it, that just even from like a familial sense, it's been very uh, palpable of who was really creating the value and who was using the value and how um, just value exchanges happen. It weirdly was baked into just my, my upbringing even. Um, I just didn't realize what I was realizing <laughs> until I had the the words and the concepts to put to it. But yeah, I think I think that's a great 
example or a, or a description of fourth turnings. I think that that actually really does lead, though, into uh, just entrepreneurship and, and investment cycles in, in such a perfect way that the, the hype and the, the dreams are always good, right? And no matter, no matter which generation those are happening and the striving for something better and the wishing for something better, it's then that next step, though, of, okay, so who is capable of allocating resources appropriately? Uh, how are we organizing ourselves appropriately to achieve even a fraction of those dreams? And that's where I just see currently a uh, demarcation. Like we talk about a, a wealth gap a lot in society and as a community and whatever, but we don't really talk about, or or we talk about like maybe a skills gap in maybe a legacy industry, just not working anymore and needing to upskill people. But we don't really that I'm aware of, at least, we don't really talk about a will gap, kind of, mm. of like, who's going to just make it happen. I'll teach myself whatever I need to teach myself. It's not me getting in line to learn coding, right? Like that, that's like the concept is the failed concept of teach coal miners how to code kind of a thing. Like, Wait, I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, you've never heard that? That's, no, it was no, like no, a political I, thing. Oh, um, you have to tell us. Well, I don't want to get super political about it, but... No, no, no. Just, I mean, what happened? I believe it was during the Obama administration in West Virginia because they were saying that coal being a dirty industry and we got to get rid of that industry. And so they're like, but what are you going to do with like multi-generational families of coal miners and just coal mines and the whole industry? And they're like, just teach them how to code. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> like that does, That's not how that works. Did this work? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> not that I'm aware of at least. Okay. So uh, audience, another thing, if you are aware of a former coal miner who is now a coder, <laughs> We would like to hear from this person as well. Please make sure yep. they reach out to us. But we don't, I, I just don't think that we talk about the the will. And, and that's one of the things from an entrepreneurial space. Um, now that I'm more heavily involved in just kind of the mechanics of an entrepreneurial ecosystem, I can teach anyone to be more entrepreneurial because that's, it's not that difficult, right? But to identify and to truly build up someone who has an innate entrepreneurial will or to spark an entrepreneurial will in a person, it's infinitely more difficult because it's, it's just different. And so that's one of the things that I, I think from a, from a fourth turning standpoint, typically those, those first two generations, it's, it's something in the water, it's something in the culture that it just, it creates entrepreneurs. It creates the social acceptability of, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. <laughs> oh, you don't think I'm going to do it? I'm going to do it times watch two. Me. Yeah, watch yeah. me. Where watch me. On the end of that fourth, uh, on the fourth turning, it's a lot more of like, how could you not help me do that? Like, why do you not want to see me succeed and help me do it? And it's just, it's just a completely different mindset of will. It's who's going to make it happen. Is it, am I expecting others to make it happen for me or am I expecting to make it happen for myself? And, yep. uh, and, and I know there's even today, there's danger in us even saying this on air, which is 100%. just ludicrous. <laughs> yeah. And yep. I'm okay with that. If I yep. take heat for saying that, uh, you know, we've got to be responsible to go make it happen. You know, look, all of us in America are starting on a different base 
than most of the rest of the world. That's where I really like the work of Daniel Eisenberg in, in the way that he sees entrepreneurial ecosystems. And one of the like consistent themes in his work is that access to resources has to be democratized. So everybody needs to be able to want to do something and to have the opportunity to attempt to do something. But the resources to do it need to be meritocratic and it needs to be a sharp meritocracy. So that as a society, or the way that I interpret this is that as a society, we're pooling our resources behind our highest performers, and we're not leaving our lowest performers to die in a field. We're just saying, start over, start over. That's interesting. What you just described, and, and man, the more I get to know Dan listeners, the more I realize that economic development in a community, and we're going to get to that. But economic development in a community is a lot like the venture capital world where, you know, we're making investments in a lot of different companies, but we're going to give our top resources, the bulk of our time, our energy, our money, the bulk of our resources is going to go to the top performers. And, you know, it doesn't mean we don't care about those businesses that aren't meeting their milestones. We do. But we've got to choose how do we help move the future forward. And what we know in the venture space is you move the future forward by giving more resource to your top performers, not more resource to your worst performers. But I love what Dan's saying, and it's certainly a passion of ours at Mammoth. It's part of our whole mission to bring much greater access to a new realm of investors, a new realm of founders that have not previously had that access. So uh, we're certainly very, very passionate about diversity and spreading out those resources to get people started. But then I love, I love what Dan's saying in a community and for a fund, then you got to go deploy, you know, the bulk of your follow on resources. We call it follow on capital in the investor world. But uh, it's follow-on resources in the economic development world. So, And that would be where I would just say that that would be kind of the difference in the economic development world where it's, it's a much more kind of complex and not to, not to down the VC world, but in a VC fund, there's, there's so many players and it's more structured. And where in the economic development world, you're on political cycles, you're on... Uh, communities having different agendas. And so it's, it's honestly very difficult to allocate resources efficiently in economic development because of the pressures of, well, it doesn't, the optics don't look good. There's a new mayor, there's a new city council person, there's a new something. So there's all of these other play, like it's like this crazy clock with all of these different wheels moving. And then sometimes they all link and you get a big win. But a lot of times it's just sort of shuffling and figuring out how do we just look at this differently and be able to take these like many different demographics that need all of these different resources <laughs> and, and figure out how to click them together. Where I think that's, in my opinion, that's the, the strength of, of venture capital and why it's been blowing up kind of in this cycle that everyone's recognizing the traditional economic development has a very specific place. And it's just not working all of the time hmm. and, and where more entrepreneurial economic development and where it's, it's much more connected to the venture world. It's much more connected to founders and startups. That's a more efficient way 
of developing an economy. We got to take a detour. I've got to hear. I have to hear about the whole art dealer side of your life. So how that started, what that actually looks like, what type of stuff you're acquiring. Are we talking like Sotheby's or are we talking like you're finding an obscure painting in a uh, like a garage? I mean, like walk us through this. Let's take a detour into the art side of Dan Swartz and then we'll we'll finish back up on economic development. Yeah, so definitely also a a different realm, a, a non-traditional trajectory to take. Um, so I was able to understand the art market side while living in New York. And I always say art market because I think in um, in a more like colloquial sense, people think of the art world as just kind of a big mush of everybody from a museum to a gallery to an artist and a studio. And there's definitely interactions, but on the art market side is a very distinct space. And so that's where you're working with auction houses. Um, you're, you're delineating like primary market and secondary market. So essentially art at auction um, versus art being sold in a gallery space where there aren't comps typically or, or it's much harder to find comps. So I didn't realize it, but I was kind of learning aspects of the venture world through the art world <laughs> through valuation really, and, and market analysis and understanding like whales, like collectors that just can command the market. But things like that are, are very applicable <laughs> between both worlds. Um, but yeah, so uh, I just really love art. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. I think that uh, art and, and just beauty in general are a thing that humanize us and allow us to uh, matter. And going through history, art is how we understand every culture. And I think that's of primary importance. Uh, so that's why I'm, I'm involved in it. I've kept a private advisory practice. So mostly what I'm doing now is, is primary market, just because I don't know how to say it other than that I've uh, made choices to where I don't have to be uh, reliant on working with people that I don't want to. Um, so typically, I'm working with uh, smaller scale collectors that are just starting their collection. Usually, they have uh, a very specific thesis um, in their collection. And then some of my, my background just has lent me to a stronger understanding of uh, contemporary Chinese art. Contemporary art in general, the contemporary art world doesn't really have many geographic boundaries, but specifically contemporary Chinese art. Um, and then mostly like neo-contemporary uh, or neo-expressionist uh, German art. So those are just two like specializations. I have to ask about this this thesis thing, because obviously in the venture space, you know, we, we have our thesis on you the types of, thesis. Yeah. yeah, we have our thesis, <laughs> the companies we want to buy in, you know, they're, they're beyond ideas. They're into actual intellectual property or things like that across the broad-based healthcare and fintech. So we've got our clear thesis. Those are the companies we're looking at. I've never heard of a thesis in the in art, collection. Yeah, in the collection side of the world. I'm so fascinated by that. So give me, give us some examples of, is it theses or thesi? Thesi. So yeah. thesi that uh, I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, yeah. Well, so so usually it's it's a, a demarcation, which would be very similar with 
with a thesis of a fund. Um, I don't so, even know what that means. What's uh, just, just that you you have to start somewhere, right? Like it's not just it's it's not the broadest. What it's not just like blue paintings, right? Like you need to get very specific and, and define something. Maybe uh, so, like one post nine eleven New York artists, um, and so it was really looking at the the first decade after nine eleven and how that impacted the American identity, um, how particularly that city responded because it was uh, the most affected space. Um, so it's a very, that's a very specific thing, right? But the work then could look very different. It could be, um, and everything, for, we were looking at everything from video to painting, sculpture. Like we, we didn't have genre constraints. We had conceptual constraints. Sometimes it can be very specific to a medium. Um, so it can be very, um, works on paper by, uh, so like for instance, works on paper, this was, this is more secondary market where you're, you're working more with auction houses just because of the age of the work, but works on paper from, uh, like the Dada era, um, which is, uh, kind of between world wars. Um, and so like, that's another very, (laughs) so it's, it's you, you define your, your area. Um, and then that allows you to understand the market. And then that allows you to understand evaluation of the work. I think it's somewhat similar. I don't know if you will like this comparison though. Um, within the art world though, it's at the end of the day, it's what do you love and what will you live with? And what do you think has the value as the, as the collector? So there is a subjective nature to it to a certain degree because because humans are humans. I would contend that any investment space has a portion of that. I definitely think that the art world is more heavy on on that side than, say, uh, more traditional investment vehicles. I mean, that's how we find ourselves in a lot of different places is because somebody loved something. And so they poured into it a little bit more. I think what I'm hearing you say is it's that like weird love for a certain something that has allowed the board eight yacht club to become a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I had the honor to meet someone last week that is the proud owner of eight board eight yacht club NFTs, uh, which uh, at current valuation as of last week puts those uh, pretty close to $2 million. Pretty wild. Pretty wild. You know, Dan, I've always been just a very, very curious person. And one of the things I think about sometimes is what about that artist that sells that painting for, let's say, 600 bucks, and then they turn around a decade later and they see that same painting being sold for $90 million. (laughs) Like, I've never had the privilege to actually talk with someone that's had that happen. Have you actually talked with someone that has had that experience where they sold the work originally? They created it. They sold it for like pennies on the dollar. And then they turn around and they see their art is now selling for like a bajillion dollars. Like, I just want to ask them, what does that feel like? There's a little bit of hyperbole there on your part. So, so honestly, some of that, though, is the mythos of the art world. So typically when that happens, it, the valuation is so high. And I don't know how to not 
the, the Scorpio in me is coming out where I'm very comfortable speaking about dark subjects, but it's because they've died probably. And so the, there's a constraint on that market. There's no more being made. So my hyperbole is this is actually a unicorn. They would not be alive to actually see that happen. Typically, I'm trying to think of someone who from that trajectory, do you know what I mean? We're at that time period. Um, but like you can, there's a lot of artists that are very uncomfortable when their art goes to the secondary market because they are visually, they're still around and they're probably part of it still to where a lot of artists will talk about how it just sort of cheapens things for them or they just see the world differently. Their, their art is turned into a commodity and it's still their art to them. <laughs> right. So um, one artist that I don't know personally, um, obviously, uh, but uh, Jasper Johns is one of the greater American painters where he was able to quickly find fame in his work back in. I'm going to get all my dates wrong and look like an idiot on here. But 60s, 70s is when he really was like primary market, but blowing up. Right. Like hottest thing, kind of a kind of a contemporary of Warhol. Um, but really even a little bit before um, Warhol in pop art. His work then, because of how famous he got so quickly, it kind of flipped to the secondary market during his lifetime very quickly. So he was able to see his work on the secondary market for a significant period of time. From my understanding of it, he was acclimated to it. But it's that initial, uh, that mm. initial hit of, oh, I'm making things that what what my my voice that was in it is still kind of there but it's more of like the brand of it than it is like a personal voice wow you know and i've never thought about it but there's there's certainly a supply and demand aspect of it so oh, it's if, huge if an artist huge was able to hit that pinnacle quicker you know let's say they're out today on social media creating a presence uh with their art then, you know, to, to really control that supply and demand curve, they've got a monopoly. I mean, they've got a monopoly of their own artwork, which is pretty cool to think about. I've just, I've never thought about it in that yeah. respect. So, but I, I get what you're saying. It's, they have to, they have to, to be able to actually have a monopoly that matters, they have to create it during their lifetime or it has to be created during their lifetime for them to actually be able to participate and capitalize on it. But I guess if they were still alive and saw their work selling for $90 million, then they could go create a new one, presumably. That would be the big difference in the art world is that it's the art world. And, and I'm sure people in the art world won't be happy with me saying this, but the art world wants the market to be as opaque as possible. The art market wants the art world to be as controlled as possible. That's the difference in my opinion, where it's very similar economic principles, but applied differently. Maybe that's the best way of saying it. So that's where galleries want an artist to be prolific, but not too prolific, right? So they want to be able to make enough money off of the artist. But if the artist, if the artist is giving it away for free, then nobody wants to be part of your market because it will dilute itself very quickly. Why wouldn't the gallery want them to be overly successful. So that would be kind of a control system too, to where, so if the gallery can buy into the mass appeal, then it's totally fine. But typically the mass appeal cuts into the gallery's uh, kind of control side. 
So a lot of artists, once they make so much money, then now they're more equal with the gallery. And so if the gallery can buy into that and then go for a mass market, everybody's happy. If the gallery has a minority share, basically, in that mass appeal, and a lot of times the mass appeal will dilute the value of those, like that controlled stockpile of goods. So it just it just changes things a lot. And then from, from a collector side, and that's where, as an advisory practice, that's where I'm, I'm looking at the artist. I'm looking at the people that the artist is working with. I'm try to get to know everybody, right? So that I can really get in on what are your goals, but at least that I can kind of get a concept of where's this person going? What are they going to do? Um, Because you're also looking at a different time horizon too, right? So that would be the other difference with funds where like 10 years for a 10 year valuation of an artist is very difficult, right? You're looking at minimum of like 20 plus, I would say. And it's, it's just different cycles, I would say, is the art market works on different cycles. This is the other thing. Nobody likes to talk about this. And I don't even like to talk about this. So this is where if someone comes to me that would like my help with this, but they just clearly are just flipping art, I'm not as interested in working with them because I really do care about the values of the art world. A lot of the art world just won't talk about these things because it's kind of anathema to talk about the business side of it. Hmm. But it's but it's very business oriented. Like when it gets down to it, <laughs> it's very business oriented. And that's where a lot of artists get discouraged because they'll get kind of blocked out. But very, very similar to what we were talking about, democratization and, and meritocracy. The gallery's job is to say, essentially, you don't have it yet. <laughs> we need to pool all of our resources into this small cohort of artists that we believe have the best chance. Yeah, we could take on a hundred more people could have their art on the walls very easily, right? Like the physical constraints of a gallery could represent way more people, but there's a vetting process basically in there where if they don't have a market defined for you, they're not going to represent you. Sounds a lot like venture capital. So I see a lot of similarities between the art world and the the venture space. Um, actually, I've been Lucky enough to have a lot of conversations with a 1517 fund, which is a pre-seed fund that is very, it feels very similar to the work that I'm doing in that the markets aren't defined yet. It's a lot of times betting on, betting really big on the, the founder because you're just not going to get those gains as, as quickly kind of at that level. And so we talk about that all the time of the valuation process is very similar. Even just sort of the culture, I think, has a lot of similarities. But what I would say is the, like the legacies of the art world are kind of what distinguish it a little bit from the venture world. But as the venture world ages, essentially, it's mirroring it in similar ways to where there's just there's people in the venture world who can create a market right? Like they've, yeah. they have the consistency over yeah. time. So now they want to do something and a lot of people just go with them, even if it's kind of a crazy idea. Yeah. I mean, John Doerr with the Segway, right? I mean, yeah, it didn't get to the level that he really wanted it to. We still have cars in downtown cities, but here's a guy that had enough clout that people were willing to at least throw hundreds of millions of dollars at the at potential yep. that we he could kind of 
with his force of will, get segways into every major city and get rid of automobiles. So sounds like that's the same in the art world. It's very similar. I want to I ask one more question on the art side, and then we're going to take it back to economic development. And when obviously there's so much synergy between, I'm even learning now, between art and venture, and then certainly economic development. And uh, on the art side, I think my, my final wrap-up question for you, and I'm going to put it in the context of authorship of books. So um, our listeners may not know this, but I'm actually a best-selling author. Uh, disclaimer, what I mean by that is for at least one week, I was in the top 1% of book sales on Amazon.com, which if you think about it, at any given time, they had over 600,000 books for sale. And so just the fact that mine sold a few copies put me in the top 1%. So hopefully you understand my sarcasm and uh, by calling myself a best-selling author, I'm making fun of myself. Uh, But I've certainly worked with literary agents over the years. And one of the shifts that I saw in the literary world is they really don't want to talk to an author anymore unless they already have a pretty substantial social media following. Like that's one of the first questions anybody, and I've taken several uh, future authors to literary agents to make those introductions. That's one of the first things they're vetting when they look at that author today. What is their social media following? What I want to ask you, Dan, is when it comes to art, you know, 2D art, 3D art, you know, not necessarily digital art. Let, let's stick with the more traditional sculpture, painting, et cetera. Have you seen any shift where that social media fabric is, is a requirement these days? Or is it more still centralized in this, no, the gallery has to vet you and the gallery is not really looking at your social media presence? I would say yes. The social media presence that somebody has can change their market for sure. That's just as a as a function, it's there. But I would say that would be kind of maybe a difference in the art world is that the structures of the art world or the infrastructure of the art world is very heavy on wanting to keep that vetting ability. <laughs> and so that's like a fight basically that's happening right now, has been happening, but it's a very heated <laughs> right now on why do we need the gallery? If I have 2 million people following me on Instagram, why do I even need to be represented? I got it. It's the, it's the direct-to-consumer issue just yep. in the art world. I've, that's fascinating to me. I've never thought of it that way. Yep. Uh, but certainly, every retailer out there is trying to figure out, how do I get direct to my consumer right now in this you know, COVID landscape uh, that we're living in? It's fascinating to me that artists are saying that and the gallery then is the gallery is almost the shopping mall. And there's fighting between the art fair and the gallery. So the art fair is gaining a lot of control because that's where a lot of the sales are happening. But they need to woo the art gallery to be there. Right. So then there's it's just an interesting interplay of where power lies in the art world. Um, And one of the defining factors that I actually haven't heard people talk about too much, but in my never humble opinion, I think will be a very big piece of this is uh, where the museums land. So museums are needing uh, public opinion more and more, and they need people to care about them and to patronize them. And so the galleries used to be the conduit to the museums. So museums wouldn't just buy art from an artist that came in off the street or that they had some random connection to or whatever. It would go through and and also dealers and not only galleries, but the art system was really the way to get into a museum. 
Well, as artists gain larger and larger presence to where they can they can control their own market, they can control themselves in general. Once artists have kind of free reign into the museum space, galleries are going to find themselves um, in kind of an equal to maybe lesser footing in that realm where currently I would still any young artist that talks to me, I still say that they should they should be striving for gallery representation. And a lot of what I say, I think, ends up sounding almost negative to galleries. And I don't mean it at all in a negative way. It's the established relationship is very uneven, power heavy on the galleries. And we're seeing that erode. And so just by having the conversation almost makes me sound like I'm saying the galleries are the bad guys. And there are many gallerists that are amazing. I'm not hearing that. I'm hearing that, hey, look, this this used to be such a fundamental part of the ecosystem. It still is. But artists need to also be thinking about the other things that are becoming important. It's a shifting kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, certainly there's a, you know, there's almost a, a, a need to help them navigate that shifting where they're not taking off the gallery, that they need their support. Uh, but they're not ignoring the new mediums of, you know, the art fair, the social media presence, yep. all those things. But wow, absolutely fascinating. I could talk about art all day. Uh, <laughs> it's it's fascinating. Um, but it, I do want to move into economic development. Yeah. And so Dan has had uh, the opportunity over really more than a decade here to be very instrumentally involved inside of his community's economic development. And what I mean by economic development for our listeners is just how do we bring more jobs to the community that are the types of jobs that we want for the community? And Dan may redefine that for you in a moment. Um, I'll give him the opportunity to do that. He probably has a better way of looking at it. What I'm not going to do is focus on Dan's specific community. We're not even going to tell you what it is at the moment. Because the principles that apply, I think, are very, very much universal. And Dan's actually gotten to lead some pretty groundbreaking research. And you're, you as our listeners are going to be some of the first to actually hear about some of those results. So I'm really uh, thankful that he was willing to spend this time with us. But Dan, let's, let's start back and just help our audience understand briefly like how you got into actual like the tie-in side of economic development as it relates to businesses interacting with their communities, with their governmental agencies at a local level, a state level, et cetera. Maybe start us there and you know, then we'll work into some of your groundbreaking research. The, I guess the best way to, to say my, my interest in this space was just I wanted to be a part of something. I wanted to uh, help define the future of my community. Um, and so really it was when I was very young, I just started to ask a bunch of questions and try to get as involved as I could. And that just kind of led into this active interest, but kind of in the back of my mind, I guess, while I was in New York, while I was doing these other things. The whole time I really wanted to always have like a, a give back component basically to my community and take ideas that I was finding from other places and figure out how to implement them there. So my formal interest in economic development really didn't uh, exist, honestly, until I moved back to my hometown. And uh, essentially, I just wanted to get things done. Um, and there was a study. So there's an organization. It's since rebranded, but it was called CEOs for Cities. And uh, I was a big fan of their work um, and how essentially economic development and um, urban planning and policy kind of all fit together. 
And they were very uh, vocal about the fact that in 2008, for the first time ever, there were more people living in cities than there uh, globally. More humans lived in cities than lived not in cities, essentially. Hmm. And then they were talking about basically just what are the the large scale and long term ramifications of that. So when I moved back into my hometown, um, I got involved with downtown development, uh, basically just out of my nerdy interest in that fact. (laughs) Um, And then uh, just taking a lot of the lessons that I learned, basically, literally from the art world, uh, from just kind of living around of trying to apply them uh, effectively to our community. And then I realized what I was doing is economic development. So kind of that the informal to formal understanding of it, really. Give us your definition of economic development. I'm sure yours will be better than mine. To be quite honest, I don't think I have like a a, a real concrete definition. It's It's usually described as like the planned allocation of resources and the creation of policies to create a stronger or larger economy, but it's really wishy-washy. I mean, honestly, economic development, uh, this is, <laughs> this is a, a phrase that's used a lot that I don't want to uh, demean the origins of this phrase, but like economic development isn't a monolith, right? To where like, it's not, it's not the same thing across all spaces. So economic development in a rural sense looks very different than economic development in a major city which looks very different than in a mid-sized city. And just to give our audience context, so Dan is in the second largest city in his state. So, you know, he's not talking about, you know, a small community. He's talking about a pretty pretty large-sized community for where uh, his involvement is happening. Second largest city in a state with hopes of, you know, dominating someday and becoming that first largest city in the yeah, state. So, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and I think that that would be a piece of it is that it has to be based on economic principles, right? So you're not doing economic development if, if the economics aren't there. <laughs> um, and so looking at who are your peer communities, looking at what are the industries that they have, what are the industries that you could have, uh, what, are the, what are the natural resources that you have, um, and how can they be implemented? So one of my favorite people to work with in economic development that I kind of learned from her a little bit. I I think that economic development sometimes can also get a bad rap in that it's very like the ribbon cutting and the sitting down with the mayor and the whatever. But like she was always talking to like maybe like engineers or whatever at utility companies and just being like, how do we get power there? How do we get water to this thing where which are very important, like the most important, right? But are from a social side are really like, uh, like dirty jobs, kind of, where like, those are the core components to economic development. If you don't have the infrastructure necessary to build an industry, you're not going to get that industry there. And so I loved that I had the chance of uh, learning it from the ground up versus like, I don't know, the ivory tower of economic development, because as much as the policy side is very important. So if you can get a mayor and a city council to work together, number one, but also to allocate funds to something, that's a big deal. And that helps a lot. But typically, that's the second thing, right? Like you have to show that there's an industry that has its own like intrinsic growth to be invested in by a locality. 
So in your particular community, Dan, what are some of the top, you know, what are the top three industries that your community is trying to bring to their area? That's an interesting. So, so basically medical device, automotive, anything, automotive manufacturing, typically. We have like six core um, kind of industry clusters. It's looking at both the legacy of what we have and then where do we see that market growing. But the way that you posited that question, though, everybody wants a tech company, right? So everyone's talking about where are we going to get these tech people? Where's the next tech company that's going to save our community kind of? And that's a, a, a subtext, like people aren't necessarily saying that so loud. But then when you look at what do we have? What are we doing good at? What is our experience? It's not tech, right? So what does our community want to bring here is some sort of giant tech hub somehow, like the next the next Facebook or whatever. What do we put all of our time and effort and resources essentially into is it's manufacturing heavy, the transition into advanced manufacturing, which is a vague term, but not many people can actually define for me, <laughs> um, uh, is, is happening, but it's in very specific areas. So because of our legacy in the automotive industry, that's where uh, a lot of the future investment is going to move. Because of our investment in medical devices, historically, recent history, um, but that's where a lot of the movement is going to be. Um, and then just because of the, of the positioning of our community, like geographic positioning. So looking at what is the natural relevance of your place? What, what do you have that other people just don't have by the nature of the place? Um, is logistics really being a logistics hub? I would say those are probably the top three areas that both we have it. We actually have the resources and the expertise to do something with, and they will grow. Then it's just a matter of how much will they grow? How competitive will we be? Can we make the wins compared to our, our peer cities or our, our leading cities? You've been on the cusp and actually are finally seeing some results from some research you've been leading uh, in your community to find out as much as you can about what's driving the entrepreneurial ecosystem, what's holding it back. What are the most fascinating things that you're seeing as you're looking at the preliminary results? So we are really interested in looking at the, how does traditional economic development kind of grow or transition into a more entrepreneurial economic development. Um, there's plenty of white papers that you can read, uh, mostly from the Fed, on why this is important, especially post-2008, of that you need to grow your economy versus competing over pulling people from other spaces, which is more traditional economic development. Because of that interest, uh, we basically just started looking around and we were like, there is so little data. Um, and this is like local level to national level. So little data that you can really compare and contrast for your community. Um, so we've tried to find some best practices to work off of. Um, that's what I referenced um, uh, Daniel Eisenberg before. Um, he works with uh, Babson College. And uh, he's just a, a, a leader at the forefront of this kind of work of looking at an entrepreneurial ecosystem. So what are all of the different components necessary to have a healthy ecosystem for entrepreneurs to grow? So we, we've taken kind of that, those models and, and tried to create something that fits for us and our community. Um, that's another reason why I really like his work is that he always says, like, this is going to look very different for each community. The core aspects are similar, are universal, 
but one community to the next is going to look very different. And so for our community, I think some of the things, well, one was just just that model. So looking at it, he defines an, an entrepreneurial ecosystem as having kind of six core buckets. And that's my word, not his. <laughs> but it's uh, policy, finance, culture, supports, human capital, and markets. And then within there, there's a lot of uh, further uh, delineation of those concepts. So my locality, uh, really, it, it has what looks on paper to be a very robust ecosystem. It's over 20 organizations, lots of connections between it, lots of similar people connected to multiple um, agencies. So like if you map it out, it's complex, it, it's interesting, there's a lot there that, or that you assume is a lot there. Almost all of them fit pretty squarely into what Eisenberg would describe as supports. And so that's the more, I guess, more traditional. I'll call it more reactive. I, I would I would agree with you. It, it's the more reactive side of that community development. Uh, it's not so much the proactive side of yep. capital, infrastructure, all those things already being established. So we have a ton of options for when you've already defined yourself as an entrepreneur, you've already constructed the business, you've already done kind of all of the sides of it, but you need help getting an SBA loan or something like that. Then, then we have a lot of supports for you, but just a very little focus was going to any of the other areas in a healthy ecosystem. So that I think would be maybe just the first realization as a community of we thought we were doing a lot. Because we had 20 organizations, but those 20 organizations were all taking care of one of the six yeah. buckets. How do you map wow. it out? Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then the next piece of that was a survey that we did um, just because we had to collect primary data because the, the data sets just don't exist. And, that, and this might be for my state. Um, that's one thing that I would like to push is some policy at the state level so that this becomes easier work in the future. Um, and I'm just not aware of perhaps there are some states that collect more data on the entrepreneurs, but um, every entrepreneur in our community has had to sign up uh, through the Secretary of State to exist as a business, but we don't really have access to that information. Um, and very and much more information could be collected at that phase when, when you have to re-up your business license to ask certain questions. It would allow us to just really understand the space a lot more, but that doesn't happen where I'm from. It might happen other places. When somebody's re-uppering their business license, all they're saying is, has your address for your registered agent changed? Yep. And are you still active? And what credit card do you want to use to pay our $25 renewal fee? Or yep. some states, it's $500. But yeah, <laughs> <Yep>. yeah <laughs> you know, that's, yep. um, that's fascinating. So you're saying that's something that state governments could really do a better job. The, the executive branch of the state governments, if they just added a couple more data points on those business renewals. Wow. Yep. That's fascinating. So any of our listeners that are connected at that level, I mean- Boy, take that to your state legislature. It's really your state secretary of state. That's the office that's controlling those business forms. Uh, let's let's move the needle on this through this podcast. Let's help make that happen. Well, and because it's just very hard to understand, okay, who are your entrepreneurs, right? So, so that was another uh, just, uh, these are just very general kind of findings that we've gotten, but like, 
we're a we're a, a, a mid-sized city without giving it away we're a, a mid-sized city and we pride ourselves on being very connected a large percentage of our survey respondents are just not connected to kind of traditional civic connections or even within those um so uh, ESO I'll probably reference this again ESO is Entrepreneurial Support Organizations. So within that network of ESOs, I assumed we would pretty much be connected. Like, yeah, we'll meet some new people. Um, but about 40% of our respondents were unheard of. <laughs> and so these people are existing in your community, but you don't know what industries they're in, what they're doing. how All of that data could be very easily collected at the state level and then be shared on the regional or county level or however you want to do it. So just data collection, just data wasn't there. And so we had to create it. That was a big finding. Um, But then out of our our respondents, we found out that basically 85% of the entrepreneurs either weren't aware of those 20 organizations or they were aware, but those organizations didn't provide them specific support. And so That, I think, has been the most uh, kind of compelling aspect of this uh, work that from a policy side is that a lot of the community leaders who assumed that things were going well because we have 20 organizations, so of course we're helping somebody, we're now realizing it's like a small bubble of people that are being connected to all 20 organizations and then a very large bubble of people that are just doing things on their own. I think just the proportion of that difference was, was pretty shocking. And then also just access to capital. Um, that's a little bit more of a, I don't know, maybe a boring data point, but it was 50, about 51% of entrepreneurs were either um, they didn't feel like they had access to capital or they weren't sure, which so that highlighted some financial literacy issues that um, just as our community, but I'm assuming that this would be applicable to a lot of communities. It's, it's not just the access to capital, but it's making sure that your entrepreneurs know how to access the capital. So our community is uh, blessed in, in certain ways to where we don't actually have access to capital or uh, capital issues. It's the access to the capital, right? It's not like we are uh, devoid of pools of capital, but it's very clear from this data, at least, is showing us very clearly that the people who need it don't know how to get it, essentially. Um, and so those are just some, some I don't know, some maybe high levels of it. Uh, another interesting thing that came out of it was just understanding one of the questions that we asked in the demographics of the survey was if you were native to our region and then if you were foreign born also. And so if you take our non-native and foreign born Um, It's about 75% of our entrepreneurs aren't from here. And I think that is not necessarily shocking or what, but I think a lot of people assume that entrepreneurs are like homegrown and they come out of, I don't know, come out of the woodwork or whatever, but we're finding that it, it really is that you can, and we are attracting them. The deficits of the study, just to be very clear about is because we have had to kind of just build it as we're as we're running, kind of. Um, we don't know, just based off of the information that we were asking, we don't know exactly what is attracting them. Yeah, that's it. What a great, what a great follow-up yeah. next step. Hey, yeah. Yeah. okay. 
75% of our entrepreneurs are coming from somewhere else. How do we get more of those to come to our community? Yep. And I think a, a lot of our listeners, listeners out there would be having that same thought. How do we get, how do we attract those new entrepreneurs yep. to our community in those industries that, you know, we want to grow this community around. So, yep. Dan, this has been absolutely fascinating. We're going to move into our final segment. This is where I ask you two questions. The first one is the question that I know all of our listeners are wondering about. What that's code for is this is the thing I'm most wondering about. If you're willing to share, what was the most expensive piece of art you have ever helped acquire for someone at this stage? Uh, yeah, so it, it was uh, a $4 million painting. It was a figurative painting. Um, it was based basically off of uh, the thesis of their collection deals with um, identity and uh, basically mental illness. Um, and so it was a portrait. Um, and that, w- that would be a piece where it was through the secondary market. So it was through auction versus from a gallery. Got it. Thank you for sharing. And now the real question that our audience is wondering about, um, you know, I think there, there are a lot of communities out there that they are trying to get their arms around. What do we need to do in our community? I know there are a lot of people that have those economic development functions. And I think um, not all of them have had that opportunity to kind of really get data around what's happening in their community. If somebody in the economic development space wanted to connect with you, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, I I welcome any and everybody. Um, I try to be an open book. Uh, uh, Probably just hit me up on LinkedIn. One thing, my last name is S-W-A-R-T-Z. I feel like everybody throws a C-H in there sometimes. Always, always. That's the easiest way to, to track me down. So Dan Swartz, S-W-A-R-T-Z on LinkedIn. Yep. And here's what I'll encourage you. When you reach out, you know, don't just hit that connect button. If for people that are trying to figure out how to use LinkedIn, here's a real important trick for you. Don't just hit that connect button. Hit that personalized invite button. And when you do, the first thing I want you to put in there is all in capitalized economic development mammoth podcast. <laughs> because then when Dan is sorting through the tons and tons of people that are hitting him up about lots of random stuff. He's going to know immediately. This is somebody who heard about what he's up to in economic development through this podcast. And that way he's going to be able to cut through the fluff. So that's it for any of you trying to make additional connections out there, whether you're a founder, anybody like that, that is just a great trick to kind of cut through uh, the muck in LinkedIn, which is a powerful social media tool. Uh, that's a great way to do it. So, Dan, we are, we are so thankful that you were here today. I'm going to wrap us up with a request to our audience. This is a really important request, probably the, the most important thing I've ever asked the audience. I am going to make a bet. I believe that somewhere out there, there is at least one former coal miner who is now a coder. I want to get that coder on our show. I want to get him or her on this show and I want to have him or her talk to this audience and share how they made that pivot from coal miner to coder. I think it'd be absolutely fascinating. Social media is designed for absolutely this moment. So let's go find that coal miner turned coder. Let's get him on this show. And uh, I got a lot of questions I want to ask. So Dan, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us here at Beyond the Ordinary. We look forward to seeing you again soon. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.